Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 13 on January 20th, 2017, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Today's main topic is the Dark Mountain and how it's related to the Low Tech Institute. We'll also have our regular weekly news roundup, research updates, and our DIY feature. This week I'll describe how to change a bicycle tube and tire. I've got a brief programming note and apology for some of our subscribers who may have noticed a hiccup in our podcast distribution this last weekend. We have been hosting our podcast on SoundCloud, but SoundCloud only allows three hours of audio to be live at any one time, and I was hoping to get a little more on, so if you joined us recently, you could go back and listen to the first podcast, second podcast, whatever. I recently found out how to host our podcast through archive.org, which is an internet library that gives unlimited free storage, and then I was able to integrate that storage through our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com, and unfortunately to do that, I had to basically republish all of the podcasts, so I'm sorry for those of you that re-downloaded all the podcasts you've already listened to. I apologize for that, but I hope from now on we should be smooth sailing and also have a wider variety of podcasts for you to listen to at any one time. So thank you for bearing with us, and let's look forward to the better service that we're now able to provide. I'd also like to point out that next week, we'll launch the Low Tech Lecture Series. This podcast will be separate from the Low Tech Podcast, and it will feature unedited academic lectures that are tangential to the Low Tech Institute's mission. We decided not to combine them with the Low Tech podcast because they're much slower paced than our podcast and they're not edited, so the audio quality and speed varies considerably. The first series will be a broadcast of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World. Check it out by following the Low Tech Lecture Series on the usual podcast apps, or you can find it on our website. If you're an instructor teaching a course that might be available to be included on the series, please contact us at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno, like us on Facebook, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you can find all of our archived podcasts as well. Now, before we dig right into our main topic, which is how the Dark Mountain community is related to the Low Tech Institute, I want to address something that I've noticed cropping up more and more as I meet more and more people and talk about the Low Tech Institute. I've really been noticing a regular refrain. I've been asked if a podcast, for example, is low-tech. So I want to clarify a little, and especially for the newer listeners, I want to lay out the ethos of the Low-Tech Institute. The low-tech ethos is not simply just rejecting all technology out of hand. Low-tech is the careful application of technology and using the simplest means possible to accomplish a task. For example, I could use a bread maker, dough conditioners, or other means to make a loaf of bread, or even just buy one in the store. But I make sourdough bread at home by hand because that's the simplest way for me to get the job done. On the other hand, the podcast is the simplest way to get across spoken material to anyone in the world. And I don't see this as contradictory. We don't use the latest technology just because it's new. It has to serve a purpose that can't otherwise be replicated by simpler means. If we can do something through muscle and sweat, we're going to do it that way. But if not, we're going to use the simplest technology to get the job done. And this brings me to today's main topic, that of the Dark Mountain. The Dark Mountain is a community of writers, artists, and thinkers who came together in 2009 after the publication of the Dark Mountain Manifesto. The core idea of the Low Technology Institute 
is that we fully accept that fossil fuels are a finite resource and that at some point in the future, we'll be trying to live without them. There are two ways this is going to come about. Either we're going to wake up now and plan ahead, or we're going to wait until the last minute to discover it's too late to maintain the status quo. And as somebody who's been an instructor for a while, I know that a lot of people are procrastinators. In either scenario, we're going to need solutions to feed, clothe, and house ourselves. That's what we're working to develop here at the Institute, low-tech, fossil-fuel-free, human-scale solutions and strategies to do those things to sustain ourselves. The reason that we've been able to reach this point, the point of accepting what is going to happen even if we don't know when or how, is thanks to the Dark Mountain. And it wasn't a short journey. When I was writing Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail?, I spent months poring over the climate and its course through geologic and human history. I read about the collapse of agriculture and societies through time. I cataloged natural and anthropogenic disasters. It was incredibly depressing. I worked through every way societies have failed. In my research, I found Dark Mountain, which is a group to quote from their webpage, darkmountain.net. The Dark Mountain Project is a network of writers, artists, and thinkers who have stopped believing the stories our civilization tells itself. We see that the world is entering an age of ecological collapse, material contraction, and social and political unraveling. We want our cultural responses to reflect this reality rather than denying it. The project grew out of a feeling that contemporary literature and art were failing to respond honestly or adequately to the scale of our entwined ecological, economic, and social crises. We believe that writing and art have a crucial role to play in coming to terms with this reality and in questioning the foundations of the world's in which we find ourselves, end quote. Now, I'm not artistic or able to write moving prose, but the overall ethos and direction of this project buoyed my spirits. I felt I was no longer alone. There were others out there that saw the same thing coming. Again, I want to stress we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but by removing the veil of the myth of progress from our eyes, it lets us look a little more dispassionately at our place in history. The Dark Mountain Project was started by Paul Kingsnorth and Douglas Hines. Paul Kingsnorth is an English writer and a former environmental activist. He worked for The Independent and then became a deputy editor at The Ecologist. He's written books of fiction and poetry. The most recent is The Wake, which is the story of the native reaction to the Norman invasion of England, which was written in a pseudo-old English that removes words based on French, since those only came into English after the invasion. It takes a little getting used to, but it's a, it's a good read. Douglas Hine is also an English writer and entrepreneur, who is a journalist with the BBC. He is a serial project founder, responsible for the School of Everything, the Space Makers Agency, and New Public Thinking, as well as the Dark Mountain Project. According to their website, in 2009, the writers found that they both shared a sense that there was a widening gap between the reality of the world today and the official narrative of that reality, end quote. A year later, their first anthology of writing and art came out called Dark Mountain, Issue 1 and the first Uncivilization Festival was held. These festivals are at least annual, and many other workshops have sprung up in this community Kings North and Hines have created. But enough background, let's look into the Dark Mountain Manifesto and the foundation behind this organization. The manifesto was published in 2009, and we'll post a link to that in the podcast page. Those of you that have been listening for a while have heard me talk about collective hubris. This is the idea that large societies can be blinded by their belief that their way of life is the best and only way to live. This blindness leads them to ignore the warning signs that foreshadow their collapse. This is outlined in much more detail uh, in my book, uh, Why Did Ancient Civilizations Fail? 
I realize it's a shameless plug, but it does have a full fleshing out of many of the topics that I like to talk about on this podcast. Take the ancient Romans, for example. They started as a small ragtag band that expanded in central Italy. As they conquered their neighbors, they learned and adapted as they were exposed to an ever-increasing array of ideas, technology, and conditions. By the time they reached the apogee of their empire in about mm, 117 CE, they had met dozens of different cultures and encountered many different types of environments. They were able to cherry-pick from a wide world around them. Over time, the accepted order became entrenched. The Romans believed that their way of life was the only true, correct way to live. Those who did not live in that way were somehow lesser. As conditions changed, in this case trade conditions, the Romans stuck fast to their status quo since it had worked for so long to support their empire. They ignored the changing conditions and collapsed. Similar cases came about for the Egyptians, Mesopotamians, Maya, Aztec, and Inca. The particulars change, but collective hubris was present in all of these failures. You can imagine, then, how glad I was to have found the Dark Mountain Manifesto when I read lines like, quote, Human civilization is an intensely fragile construction. It is built on little more than belief. Belief in the righteousness of its values. Belief in the strength of its system of law and order. Belief in its currency. Above all, perhaps, belief in its future. End quote. A historian of any of the previously mentioned societies could use this passage to describe that culture. But the Dark Mountain takes this beyond a simple analysis of what has been. They predict, quote, Once that belief begins to crumble, the collapse of a civilization may be unstoppable. That civilization's fall, sooner or later, is as much a law of history as gravity is a law of physics. What remains after the fall is a wild mixture of cultural debris, confused and angry people, whose certainties have betrayed them. And those forces, which were always there, deeper than the foundations of the city walls, the desire to survive and the desire for meaning. End quote. And the goal of the Lotech Institute is to collect and cultivate the skills and knowledge to survive after such a collapse. Archaeologists and others who look at history in the long focus know that societies exist on roller coasters. No matter how high they go or how strong that upward trend is, they always hit a peak. At least this is all the data we currently have. One might be tempted to say that the future of our own global civilization will be the exception to shatter historical expectations. The dark mountaineers, and that's often what they call themselves, mountaineers, uh, warn against this, quote, History becomes an escalator, and the only way is up. On the top floor is human perfection. It is important that this should remain just out of reach in order to maintain the sensation of motion, end quote. In anthropology, we got rid of unilinear evolution in the last century. This was the idea that societies exist on a spectrum from savage to civilized, and all cultures were moving from savagery to civilization. This justified colonial practices that tried to pull so-called backwards cultures, screaming and kicking into civilization. And I hope that we're all in agreement now that this isn't a fair way to interact with one another. Today, anthropologists understand that each society is on its own unique trajectory. And this is an idea called multilinear evolution. This tacks back to Dark Mountain by suggesting that the story the Western industrialized nations are telling themselves does not make their continued belief in progress the only way forward. The archaeological perspective says that progress, at least as it's seen by Western industrialized nations, is not inevitable. The Institute's position on nature and technology have been influenced by the manifesto as well. Kings North and Hines point out that, quote, 
The very fact that we have a word for nature is evidence that we do not regard ourselves as part of it. Indeed, our separation from it is a myth integral to the triumph of our civilization. We are, we tell ourselves, the only species ever to have attacked nature and won. But, they continue, we hear daily about the impacts of our activities on quote-unquote the environment and many of the quote-unquote solutions to these problems. Solutions which usually involve the necessity of urgent political agreement and a judicious application of human technological genius. Things may be changing, runs the narrative, but there is nothing we cannot deal with here, folks. End quote. The Mountaineers also recognize the rift between deep and shallow ecologists first articulated by Arnie Nass, which I've discussed before on our blog. But in short, deep ecologists are concerned with the entire ecosystem and consider humans as part of, not the rulers of, the natural world. On the other hand, shallow ecologists, in the words of the Dark Mountaineers, quote, are more likely to be found at corporate conferences hymning the virtues of sustainability and ethical consumption than doing anything as naive as questioning the intrinsic values of civilization. A radical challenge to the human machine has been transformed into yet another opportunity for shopping, end quote. Like the Mountaineers, we here at the Institute accept that the future will have to be different. Even fossil fuel proponents don't look out beyond another hundred years or so. What are we supposed to do after that? The Manifesto argues that, quote, For all our doubts and discontents, we, that is the society at large, are still wired to the idea of history in which the future will be an upgraded version of the present, end quote. In other words, society refuses to plan for the future that is coming because they cling to the belief in a future that can't be. And by dint of studying ancient cultures, archaeologists often get a different perspective on our own culture. And this is an outside perspective. The Dark Mountain Manifesto takes this same outside, possibly more objective view of our society. Quote, We are highly evolved apes with an array of talents and abilities which we are unleashing without sufficient thought, control, compassion, or intelligence. Apes who have constructed a sophisticated myth of their own importance with which to sustain their civilizing project. End quote. It is the view of humans in their context within the world, not of humans dominating the world. Regular listeners to the podcast know the Institute works under three principles. First, we recognize that humans are one species among many on the planet. Second, we should seek to mimic successful natural systems and live off the excesses of renewable resources, not the budget of non-renewable ones. And third, prefer simple to complex solutions, and avoid unnecessary complication. The Dark Mountain also has principles. They call them the Eight Principles of Uncivilization. And these are all quotes. We live in a time of social, economic, and ecological unraveling. All around us are signs that our whole way of living is already passing into history. We will face this reality honestly and learn to live with it. Two, we reject the faith which holds that the converging crises of our times can be reduced to a set of problems in need of technological or political solutions. Three, we believe that the roots of these crises lie in the stories we have been telling ourselves. We intend to challenge the stories which underpin our civilization, the myth of progress, the myth of human centrality, and the myth of our separation from nature. These myths are more dangerous for the fact that we have forgotten that they are myths. Four, we will reassert the role of storytelling as more than mere entertainment. It is through stories that we weave reality. Five, humans are not the point and purpose of the planet. Our art will begin with the attempt to step outside the human bubble. By careful attention, we will re-engage with the non-human world. Six, we will celebrate writing and art, which is grounded in a sense of place and of time. 
our literature has been dominated for too long by those who inhabit the cosmopolitan citadels. 7. We will not lose ourselves in the elaboration of theories or ideologies. Our words will be elemental. We write with dirt under our fingernails. 8. The end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop. Together we will find the hope beyond hope, the paths which lead to the unknown world ahead of us. End quote. So that's the end of the eight principles of uncivilization uh, according to the Dark Mountain Manifesto. So we here at the Institute hope to be part of the more nuts and bolts aspect of the future. That is how we'll feed, clothes, and house ourselves. The Dark Mountain is focused on the stories and art of that future world. I feel like we at the Institute don't have time or the skills yet to contribute to this aspect of the future as strongly, but we recognize that enjoyment of life comes from those things and they shouldn't be neglected, even if we spend most of our time here at the Institute talking about gray water systems, wind power, and growing beets. We also don't see this as a pessimistic outlook. It's more of a realistic one, and it's unfortunate that the realistic one may not be as optimistic as the mainstream one. I think many people are optimists, and I think society as a whole generally tends to be optimistic because that makes us strive towards the future. It's understandable that many people believe that progress will be an upward march on past where we can see. Unfortunately, there are physical constraints on our world, and we have to recognize them and realistically plan ahead. And that's what we're trying to do here. We are no longer pessimistic. I used to feel anxiety and worry about where the world was headed, but I've gotten through that because now I'm working towards actually making solutions for the future rather than just worrying about it happening to me. And a lot of that has been helped along by reading some of the posts and books put out by the Dark Mountain and their writers and artists. So I really appreciated them as I was working through my own thoughts and feelings about the future. And many of the same themes hit upon by the Mountaineers are also paralleled and have influenced many of the practices here at the Institute. And so I wanted to give a bit of a rundown and a thank you to them in this podcast. You can find the Dark Mountain Project at dark-mountain.net. This week on the blog, you can find our DIY feature in which I made a video and gave short instructions on how to change a tube or a tire on a bicycle. Uh, We see bicycles as one of the most efficient means of transportation today and hopefully tomorrow. It's the most efficient machine I know of to convert human power into transportation without using external fossil fuels or other fuel sources. Although it's made in an industrial setting, bicycles are still a low-tech solution when compared to the other transportation options we have out there. So have a look at the blog. You can see how to both remove the wheels from the bike, but also remove the tires and tubes from the wheel, and then replace them all. So check that out. There's a video, and I appreciate any uh, feedback or comments you have on that. Next week, we'll continue to look at bicycles and some basic repairs. Now let's take a look at this week in low-tech news. One story sent in by a listener describes a repair cafe where folks can bring in beloved but broken items and learn how to fix them from repair coaches or volunteers. And I think this is a great idea and a great way for people to revitalize and reuse existing things rather than having to throw them away and buy replacement ones. 
this helps us move away from the throwaway culture that seems to predominate much of our world today. We have another story about how Denmark has worked to reduce food waste. We often hear about the difficulty we're going to have feeding the estimated 11 billion people we'll have on the planet by the end of the century, but it's worth thinking about the one-third of food that goes to waste already. If we eliminated that waste, we'd come close to feeding 11 billion people already. We also see that Seattle's bike share program is going down, and this reminds me of the failed program in Portland in the 1990s, where bikes were salvaged, repaired, and painted yellow, and then put on the streets for anyone to use. Unfortunately, the bicycles were vandalized and stolen, and it's really a shame because maybe a system like this could work if enough bikes were made available. It seems right now the only viable bike share programs are the ones that you have to have a credit card and it costs a fair amount to use a bicycle, which certainly is a step up from not having a bicycle, but it would be great if we could make bikes even more widely available and encourage the infrastructure in cities to be more bike friendly. Those are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we've discussed and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com, or by following the link in our podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of the research we have going on around the Institute. As the Institute does not yet have a permanent home, most of the Low Tech research is on pause. However, we're using this time to learn about nonprofit management, accounting, tax codes, and so on. We're also meeting with local groups, such as the Open Source Seed Initiative, and we'll bring you an interview with that organization's head next week. Well, that's all we have for this week. Uh, the Low Tech Podcast is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Water Schemey off the album 8-Bit Empire by Ozid. That song and this podcast are under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share them as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating because it helps us reach a wider audience. I'd be happy to have your feedback, which you can leave me on soundcloud.com slash lowtechpodcast. You can find out more information about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. You can find us on Twitter at low underscore techno, and also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. Thanks, and take care.